The Magician's Niece presents Sinisterhood by Helena Marie Chandler. Music by Adrian Romero. Chapter 5 The Dodo. Dawn thought it was odd that she hadn't heard from Auntie Kira. She did promise to phone as soon as she landed at home. Dawn wasn't nervous though, not nervous yet. There hadn't been any plane crashes announced on the news, and her mother hadn't phoned her up to say that Kira had been involved in some kind of terrible car accident. A quick call to her mother would have put a stop to any worries, but that was out of the question. Dawn's mother had made it very clear to her many years ago that she was not to make any contact with her parents. She said it upset Geoffrey too much. But now that Daddy was in her home, Dawn wasn't sure where she stood with this rule. Trust me, Etta told her, it really isn't worth the trouble. Dawn was sure her family wasn't normal. Etta's family wasn't normal either. Etta too had been sent to Lotan's very young. A little bit older than Dawn though, at six. Etta was now 35, and she still lived at Lotan's, but she wasn't part of the school anymore. She and Dawn and four other residents all shared a house together in the grounds. It was a big house, with six bedrooms and two living rooms and a huge kitchen. Mrs Wade was there all day and all night, and she did the cooking and the housework. Etta came from Northern Ireland, just like Dawn. She wasn't allowed to see her mother. But her grandmother was always over in England, and she always came to visit. They owned one of the big estates in County Down, and it seemed like they had a lot of money. Etta was like a big sister for Dawn. Dawn liked her very much. She was even helping Etta with her big family project, the one that she was always working on in the library. Dawn didn't like the library. She found it dusty and boring and cold but she was interested in Etta's family history. It was full of strange characters and tragedies and people who kept doing things wrong. That afternoon, Dawn had a session with Dr Jones. She always enjoyed their talks. Dr Jones was a wise older owl who never gave her the wrong advice. She was something called a psychiatrist, a kind of doctor who looked inside your brain. Dr Jones would say that her special skill was her excellent knack for reading people and knowing why they did what they did. Dawn could tell that she was always right. Dr Jones would say that Dawn was a nice and kind person, but that sometimes she could have a little bit too much of a vivid imagination. Dawn trusted the wise owl's words. After all, Dr Jones was a very clever lady and she had been looking inside people's brains for a long, long time. Dr Jones always made sure that Dawn told her every single thing that was going on inside her head. That afternoon, during their hour-long session, Dawn's thoughts about Auntie Kira were on the very tip of her tongue. Her thoughts that Auntie Kira hadn't done what she'd said she'd do, phone up Dawn when she'd got to her mummy's house in Helen's Bay. It wasn't exactly a giant worry that Dawn had swimming around in her head. It was just a little worry, a whisper of a worry. She didn't want to seem to Dr Jones like she was silly, afraid, or like a little child. But Dr Jones noticed that Dawn was holding something back. She encouraged Dawn to tell her what was going on. I didn't get a phone call from my Auntie Kira, said Dawn, quietly, trying to quell the anxiety in her voice. Were you expecting one? She's visiting my mummy, and she said she'd call me when she got to mummy's house, but she hasn't. Dr Jones laughed a little. She took Dawn's hands in hers. There's no need to worry, Dawn. People forget to phone up all the time. She's most probably been really busy catching up with your mummy. But Dawn couldn't remember Auntie Kira once forgetting to do what she said she was going to do. My mummy doesn't like me phoning her up, but I think I should phone up to check on Auntie Kira. If you want to, said Dr Jones, but I'm sure she's absolutely fine. People generally phone up when things aren't all right. No news is good news. 
What does that mean? It means that if you haven't had a phone call, nothing bad has happened. Dawn supposed that wise old Dr. Jones was right. Dawn did, as Dr. Jones always said, have a vivid imagination. She was probably painting all kinds of imaginary pictures in every little corner of her mind. It had already been two days since Dawn had last seen Auntie Kira, and she really, really missed her. But she remembered that Auntie Kira had arranged to take her out for a pizza when she came home, in about ten days' time. It was the thought of their evening together next Sunday that put Dawn's mind at rest. Taking on Auntie Kira's best advice to always be brave and to always keep going, Dawn decided it was best to just get on with her week. chosen because Victoria had a quiet passion for luxury. It was the only place left in the world where one could truly waft in unapologetic glory, where one could truly imagine oneself being a first-class passenger on a great, iconic, turn-of-the-century ship. And this, a fjord exploring adventure. She'd always envisaged herself as some kind of ice princess. In any case, it wasn't necessary for Kira to know where she was going. The gift had never been intended for her. Indeed, any prior knowledge would have been a dangerous and unnecessary risk to the success of the enterprise. It was vital that only Victoria knew the truth of her game. The boat set sail from Belfast on Wednesday morning, returning to dock in just under ten days. The purpose of this trip wasn't just one of pleasure and fantasy. It had, in fact, a very pragmatic underpinning the tidal depths of the icy cold fjords. Victoria had also gathered knowledge on the frequency of disappearances on cruise ships. Little was it known to the general public, but people were falling overboard into the murky depths, really all the time. Victoria chuckled to herself with the thought that cruisers should carry a health warning. Danger, disappearances frequent. Of course, fallen bodies might be eaten by sharks in the Caribbean, That had been her initial choice, but precise timings were an impediment to that option. It was far too distant a location, and she wouldn't be able to return before the beginnings of the twelfth. In any case, the fjords were impossible to fathom. Would any police force really bother to dredge the biggest and deepest fjord in Norway? And with all those powerful tides, the body would no doubt be swept out to sea in little more than a trice. Victoria was rather enjoying being her sister. She slipped so easily into the role. She'd always been an accomplished actress. She didn't doubt that, had she been permitted the opportunity to attend Rada or Lambda, she would have been considered a great thespian of her day. Getting through the ship's security had been a doddle. No one looked too closely at a middle-aged woman on her own. Infuriatingly, however, she had had to have her photograph taken, this for her cruise pass. Thankfully, no one was sufficiently eagle-eyed to recognise the subtle differences between Kira's passport picture and her own. Then there was the next of kin form. Upon inspection of Kira's handbag, Victoria found that her sister, always so organised, had kept a neatly written address book. Victoria put Nigel's contact details on the form, so that no one would ever have to disturb her once the missing person had finally been identified. Victoria had chosen her wardrobe carefully. In fact, she picked out a few pieces from her sister's own suitcase. Now that Kira had let herself go, they fitted Victoria quite well. Normally, she would never permit herself to stoop to anything less than cashmere or Jaeger or silk, but needs must. And for the first time in her life, she didn't aspire to be the centre of attention. Her sole aim was to fade into the background, just like an irrelevant frump. Flat, clunky shoes, dull, woollen cardigans, a boring hairstyle. All the sorry details performed their task with greater plumb. 
she slid through those first days of the trip almost unnoticed. Victoria had imposed a one-glass limit on herself, just in case the wine loosed her tongue and some minor remark drew unwanted attention. She was quite pleased that, on this journey, pragmatism and pleasure had combined into the perfect treat. The ship was extremely comfortable, the itinerary unusual, and the food supremely delicious. Victoria had planned with great precision for the day that Kira was to disappear. She had booked herself onto a busy tour. Would the tour leader really take a register, ticking off names like those of children on a school trip or in a playground? Victoria wanted to create as much confusion as to her whereabouts as possible, so that alarm bells wouldn't be ringing until she was well and truly on her way back home. On the morning of the tour, Victoria phoned through to reception, saying she felt too unwell to attend. The instructions in her cabin's brochure as to the cancellation procedure was quite specific. One had to phone through to the individual tour guide concerned. On this busy ship, Victoria was quite sure that the message wouldn't get passed on by the busy girl at reception. Indeed, it never was. This meant that Kira wasn't missed for several days. Victoria had ensured not to make any friends on board. She'd developed a bristly disposition and one of a woman quite odd. It was a persona convincing enough, in any case, not to encourage anyone to make conversation with her at the bar, at bridge, or at lunch. Indeed, no one noticed that she wasn't at dinner that night, nor at breakfast the following morning. It was only by mid-morning when the liner was jetting through fjords on the third day, slipping through shimmering waters of steel and ice like a hot soldering iron, that housekeeping questioned whether Kira had slept in her own bed for the past two nights. The Portuguese cleaning staff thought the old bird had struck lucky and been invited into the bed of some other passenger, equally ancient and crinkly. But something did eventually catch their eye. Her toothbrush was still in the bathroom, and it hadn't been used at all. Surely Ms Dunleavy would have brushed her teeth at least once on this trip. Admin was contacted, and an announcement was made at dinner. Victoria had already abandoned ship. She'd sacrificed all those scruffy clothes as part of the artwork, leaving them on their hangers in her wardrobe, and she was taking a circuitous route home. This time, she used her own passport and left her sisters behind. She used trains and boats, not planes, as a supplementary show of stringency. Victoria knew that travel by land and sea was more anonymous than that of the more glamorous and exposing travel by plane. And anyway, time was on her side. She still had a good few days before she had to begin the next stage of her programme. Time to coincide with a very particular occasion. That time in July when all sensible and well-heeled dwellers of the province evacuated the land for the full duration of all that insufferable drum-banging, that flute-tooting, those bowler hats and marches. And so, as Victoria rewarded herself with a whiskey and ginger on her first-class seat aboard the train that would take her to Calais, via Denmark, Holland and Brussels, she imagined the panic and chaos she had left behind. All the ship's staff searching the liner, phone calls made to the police. But nothing would be found, of course. Kira had simply vanished. There would be no other explanation for it. Miss Dunleavy had fallen overboard. Chapter 7 The Dodo British citizen on cruise from Belfast to Norwegian fjords announced missing, feared drowned. Had Dawn heard that correctly? Dawn would spend many hours in the kitchen, chatting away to Mrs Wade and watching the birds in the garden. Mrs Wade, the guardian who lived with the five women in the house, 
liked the constant buzz of the radio as she did the housework and the tools. Whether she listened to the radio, however, Dawn was never sure. Dawn herself never listened, but somehow, this time, her attention was called. Perhaps it was the word Belfast, the place where she was born. Perhaps it was the word cruise, a word that she and Auntie Kira always seemed to laugh at. Perhaps it was the word missing, and the other word too, drowned. In any case, Dawn was unsure. She asked Mrs Wade to explain the meaning of the news story. It was still five days before Auntie Kira was to return home. Dawn knew that Kira had gone over to Helen's Bay for a treat. She'd only guessed it was a holiday because holidays were her mummy's favourite pastime. She'd only suggested a cruise to Auntie Kira as a joke because her mummy was always so obsessed with those silly, glamorous trips. Had Mummy and Auntie Kira been on a cruise from Belfast to Norway? Was this British woman anything to do with them? Dawn bit her lip. If Kira and Mummy had gone away, Dawn wouldn't be able to reach them for a number of days and she wouldn't be able to find out the answer to all her dancing thoughts. Dawn pondered the dilemma over another cup of tea. She could risk phoning her mother. If no one picked up, she'd know they were both still away. If her call was answered, she'd know that the gift had been nothing to do with a holiday at all and that Auntie Kira had just spent ten days with Mummy at home in Helen's Bay. Dawn decided to wait until Etta was back from the library. Together they sat down and talked and decided that the phone call was, this time, worth the risk. Dawn asked Mrs Wade if she was allowed to use the house telephone. She almost hoped that Mrs Wade would say no. Of course, however, she didn't. And so Dawn walked steadily towards the hall table and picked up, nervously, the receiver. With a wince and a tremor in her fingers, her heart pounding loudly in her ears, Dawn dialed the number that Mrs Wade had given her from the Lotons family address book. The phone rang. And it rang. Nobody answered. Dawn put the phone back down. On the one hand, she found that she was relieved that she didn't have to speak to her mother. On the other, she still wasn't sure if they'd been to Norway, or if this missing person had anything to do with her aunt. cross the proverbial nosy neighbours. You can always trust Daphne Featherston to poke around in business that has absolutely nothing to do with her. Victoria turned round slowly, transformed her pained expression into something she was sure was a smile. I've been to London, actually, to see my daughter. Poor little Dawn. You must forgive me, Daphne, Victoria pronounced in the most sombre of tones, but I'm afraid I'm really quite tired. You're not vacating for the marching season. We're just heading off to Donegal. I'll be sitting it out at home this year, said Victoria, and then, thank you, Daphne, goodbye. Victoria made straight for the telephone. It was already Friday, and she wanted to ensure that the concrete was laid at the beginning of next week. Geoffrey had been in the construction business, of course, and she could have used any of his old company's contacts. But Victoria wanted to employ a business much more remote one with whom she'd had no previous dealings. Londonderry it would be. She'd throw them an extra few bob for bothering to make the long journey. 
The 12th fell that weekend, and virtually the entire population of Kathleen Avenue had already vacated their homes, getting as far away from the fuss and embarrassment as they could possibly manage to arrange. No one would see the lorry arrive. No one would hear the squelch and thump of all that mass of concrete. A young man answered the phone. Victoria announced that she needed much work done on her old patio. She had a party coming up, she said. It was for her elderly mother, you see, and she was worried lest the old woman trip on the uneven paving slabs. She needed the patio reconcreted and sharpish. Would there be anyone available first thing in the week? Given the timing and very short notice, Victoria was asked if she didn't mind having a temporary employee. She couldn't believe her luck when Raoul turned up at her front door on Monday. A cheery foreign chap who wouldn't have the linguistic ability to ask any probing questions. Victoria sprang into action like a programmed Exocet missile. She was up early that morning, chipping at the existing paving stones to ensure she gave reason for the work. After he had concreted the patio, Victoria announced to the workman that she had one little extra request. Would you mind awfully, Raoul, putting some of that stuff into my septic tank? It's going to be sealed when the water board puts me on main sewage next week. Her middle-aged what-do-I-know-about-anything facade had already been well honed over her many years of tricks and swindles and scams. Raoul's expression was a quizzical one, but he had been primed with much coffee and Victoria had forced upon him an array of sweetened tray bakes. And so, with a bit of supplementary hand gesturing, the unsuspecting workman understood Victoria's demands. Obligingly, he lined up his lorry, opened the manhole and sloshed the concrete in. Not too much, piped Victoria all in a rush. I don't want to waste your precious product. Since no main sewage connection was intended, she still needed some space for effluent. Now on her own, these sludges should still only be an annual affair, just like they had always been. But Raoul had dumped enough concrete to set the deed and the corpse in stone. The ultimate brilliance of Victoria's plan was that the cesspit at the bottom of the garden wasn't even on the records for the house. She'd discovered this when, at the end of last year, first realising the enormity of her looming financial oblivion, she'd had the house valued, not a fraction of the worth of her sister's pad, she'd learned, but there was, in fact, a nugget of gold in this disappointing valuation. All records showed that the house was on main sewage. She discovered she had the perfect hiding place. The troubles, too, were a boon to her scheme. The RUC was, by all accounts, more than a little bit tied up. But police or no police, Victoria judged her plan impenetrable. No one she knew could possibly have the wiles or brilliance to unravel this the perfect crime. strange and funny things her mother had done during their ten-day holiday together. She wondered what impression Kira had got of her mum after all their many years apart. Dawn picked out her favourite outfit. She put on the blue earrings Kira had bought her for her 17th birthday last year. Dawn began to think about what she would choose for her meal. She and Kira had been going to the same Italian restaurant together since 1975. Auntie Kira usually went for the same thing, seafood risotto, but Dawn couldn't stand mussels or octopus or prawns. Six o'clock came and went, and so did seven, and then eight, and then nine. Dawn found herself confused. She was worried and upset. Surely Auntie Kira hadn't forgotten about their arrangement. Surely in just ten days her mother hadn't brought out the unaffectionate and careless side that had always been so invisible in her aunt. Dawn decided it would be a good idea to phone up the Wimbledon house. Perhaps Kira was tired, she thought. Perhaps she'd had a nap after her flight. 
Perhaps she was still asleep. Dawn dialed the number. The phone rang, but there was no response. She phoned again, and then again, and again, ten whole times. Dawn was beginning to feel frantic. Absence was unknown in her sweet Auntie Kira. She and Dawn would always see each other at least three times every week. Had Dawn done something to push her loving aunt away? Had there been some terrible accident? Had Kira finally had enough of her? Dawn asked Mrs Wade what she thought of the situation. The old lady said that her aunt had no doubt been delayed on her flight from Belfast. Or perhaps there was simply heavy traffic on the M4 back from Heathrow. She told Dawn to wait until morning. She could give her aunt a ring again, first thing. It was getting late, she said, and Dawn should put on her pyjamas. There was no use second-guessing, convincing herself of some disaster. That kind of vivid mental picturing had never been of use to anyone. But Dawn was beginning to have a feeling, like someone, her aunt would say, trampling over her grave. The feeling was a familiar one, and Dr Jones was always trying to get Dawn to ignore it, to step away from the world of her childish imagination but this time her stomach felt knotted and her tongue was dry and her mind was buzzing with all kinds of thoughts and suppositions. Mrs Wade suggested a cup of tea. Dawn tried to drink it, but she couldn't. Mrs Wade made her a slice of toast, but Dawn found that she couldn't eat. Dawn wished and wished that she and Etta were allowed to take a taxi. They could go to Kira's house and find out what was wrong. It was so infuriating sometimes being considered incapable, in danger, at risk. Dawn was nearly 18 for heaven's sake. She may have been Downs, but she knew she wasn't stupid. In any case, Etta was a grown-up lady, and both of them were much more sensible, well-behaved and thoughtful than most of the adults Dawn had ever met. Couldn't they make a quick trip to Wimbledon, just this one time? Mrs Wade was afraid that it was impossible. The matter was out of her hands, she said, against the rules. She'd get into trouble with the school for letting them out, and no doubt, too, with the police. Dawn could feel a tremor of tears begin to bubble up from within her. She was determined that she wasn't going to cry. But the tears came and so did the anger, because no one would ever listen to her, and this time she knew that something wasn't right. You know, the easiest way to clarify things would just be to phone up your mum. You don't know my mum, said Dawn. She'll get really angry with me. She always does. She says that she doesn't like me to disturb her. Mrs Wade said that she'd always suspected that Dawn exaggerated somewhat when it came to her mother. There were such things as instincts, she said, that mothers might be strict or tough or cold, but that they always did love their own children. Inwardly, Dawn rolled her eyes. Well, I think you should do it said Mrs Wade, because you're always saying you're a brave young lady, and maybe this time you should prove it. And so many tears were never of use, she went on, and they never brought comfort to anyone. can't sleep. Etta could see that her friend was sad. Dawn had red and blotchy eyes and she was leaning over and cradling her forehead. Etta asked Dawn if she wanted to sleep top to toe. Dawn didn't reply. Mrs Wade thinks I'm being silly. Am I being silly? 
being silly about what. Kira didn't come tonight. She didn't leave a message. She didn't answer the phone. And she didn't phone me up from my mum's house, even when she'd promised. Etta did think it was strange. Kira always kept her promises. She wasn't like the weird one in Dawn's family. She wasn't like the weird ones in her own. Actually, can I sleep here tonight? I think I'll be worrying on my own. Etta lifted up the duvet. With Dawn wriggling and sniffing and getting up to wander around, Etta didn't get any sleep at all that night. First thing next morning, Etta agreed with Dawn that they should give Auntie Kira another ring. Perhaps she had got delayed and hadn't returned until very late. Perhaps she hadn't wanted to disturb Dawn after ten o'clock. But once more, there was no answer. That was when Dawn told Etta about the strange story of a woman falling overboard into the sea on a Norwegian cruise. And they said the boat set sail from Belfast. With any luck, that woman was your mum. It's not funny, said Dawn. I've got an odd feeling. Why on earth isn't Auntie Kira back? I think we need to tell someone. Let's get the school to phone up the police. Etta told Dawn that she thought the whole thing would blow over that everything would work out all right in the end. But telling the school was a good idea, she said, just in case Auntie Kira wasn't all right. Of course, the school wasn't concerned. Etta couldn't tell if it was because they were trying to keep Dawn calm or if they really didn't believe there was a problem. After all, Dawn didn't even have a clue what this famous present actually was from her mum. It was then that they resolved to phone up that nasty woman, Victoria. It turned out that the witch didn't deny it. Kira had been on that boat. A Norwegian cruise up the fjords, setting sail from Belfast. Dawn was surprised that Kira had been alone. Her mother was obsessed with cruising. Why had she not gone too? Etta was leaning in close against Dawn so she could hear what was said. She heard the spikiness of Victoria's low-pitched voice. I've just been on a walking holiday to the Alps, Dawn. I might like holidays, but I'm not greedy. Who was the lady who fell overboard? Where's Auntie Kira? I do not know what you're talking about, Dawn. What lady is this? You know you do have a very vivid imagination. The lady on the radio. Well, all I can say is I have no idea what you're on about. I wasn't there, it's none of my business, and it's certainly not any of yours. It is my business. It's Auntie Kira. Well, I haven't seen her. She told me she was going straight back to London. She was supposed to see me last night. It was then that Etta heard Victoria's voice change tone. Etta couldn't quite work out how to describe it, but her voice became airy and angry and short. Why would you have been seeing her last night? Etta knew well enough that Dawn didn't share much information with her mother. In fact, Victoria didn't even know how close Dawn and Auntie Kira really were. Never mind, Dawn muttered. She put down the phone without saying goodbye. Etta felt terribly sorry for her friend. She could tell that Dawn was getting a sinking feeling, and she was getting a sinking feeling too. And that mother of hers, she was really a witch. Etta had never even met Victoria, since she'd never ever visited Dawn. But it was clear that Victoria was a horrible lady, that she was mean, competitive, and concerned only with herself. Etta's own mum wasn't allowed to come and visit, which she found really painful and sad. But to not come out of choice was pure evil, Etta thought. She felt so very sorry for Dawn. At least she got to see her own grandmother whenever she was in town. But Etta knew she wouldn't be seeing her many times more because Granny Doville was getting very old these days. Dawn looked up at Etta with tearful eyes. Please can I give you a hug, Hen? was what Dawn asked. Chapter 11. The Vulture. Victoria huffed and puffed as she put down the phone. In some way she supposed that the little one would eventually find out about Kira's disappearance. 
but she hadn't believed that the girl would put her finger on it so soon. Nasty Kira had kept their special relationship very quiet indeed, particularly for someone so virtuous and boastful. Victoria was much irritated by the discovery of the friendship, and she must say quite surprised. But Dawn's confession did little to trouble her. Victoria had been told early on that the girl's intelligence would never rise above that of a ten-year-old. Lotens may have done a good job at giving her a half-decent education, but Dawn would be off the scent of Kira's misadventure within minutes, of that she was absolutely sure. Anyway, she had to get going. It was golf at eleven o'clock, then nails and a blow-dry and charity work that evening with a bake sale at the Presbyterian Church. Victoria enjoyed very much her charities. She found that the praise her work inspired had a very special flavour to it. Juicy, almost oozing, excessive, disproportionately gross. She relished that look of guilt and, what was it, jealousy that she saw in the eyes of all those she could make listen when she talked of her belief in sacrifice and service. Oh yes, her day would be lovely. She even had that pork pie in the fridge. So much self-discipline not to scoff the lot of it at the first opportunity. She'd enjoy the deferred pleasure tonight even more, with lashings of relish in a large, stiff gin as she watched the ten o'clock news. She was a lady of leisure, and proud of it. Ever since she dispensed with Geoffrey, her life had been even more wonderful still. He was lonely. Only his vague thoughts and his muddied memories were his companions now. It seemed he had been here for many years. Time had taken on a different dimension, and he could never quite tell what was the day, the week, or even the year. Images, colours, sounds, all of it crashed before his eyes and his ears in an array of kaleidoscopic confusion. Words didn't come as well as they used to do. Words, and therefore, thoughts, and memories and imagery and sensations. He felt himself stuck, stuck in a world between two, a world distant from his past, a place obscured from the comforts of the present. Geoffrey's arrival in the home had come all in a rush and a mystery. It was a stroke, they said, from stress and overwork, and the financial tensions that came with running so many businesses all at once and that during the chaos and the cruelty of the Troubles. Money just seemed to melt away, especially in his final years with Victoria. His wife never came to visit him now, of course, which hurt, but in some ways it was for the best. She'd always been such a sensitive woman, full of emotion and feeling. He'd learnt over the years that it was always best never to upset her. Geoffrey did worry about his wife very often, though, now that she was all alone. And of course, he worried a lot about their daughter. He couldn't speak to Dawn on the telephone anymore. He couldn't even manage to write a letter. Recently, he'd begun to wonder if Dawn would even remember him. Geoffrey would relive those last few months with Victoria as best he could, over and over again in his mind. He remembered that the house had been tinged with a quiet, a silence so unusual given her raging and mountainous moods. It was strange because, when he considered her usually volatile nature, Geoffrey had begun to feel that his wife's presence was calming. She was almost meditative at times. Geoffrey had thought, at the time, that it was no doubt because she was so preoccupied with Dawn as she entered her adolescent years. 
but Geoffrey did somehow remember a number of incidences that occurred during that period, ones that he thought were particularly strange. The evening he was sick, for example, after having taken just one gin and tonic with his meal. As he recalled, it was the gin Victoria had livened up with a handful of her new botanicals. He thought, at the time, that it was just his weak stomach, but the sick that had come out of his mouth was tinged with blood. A few days later, he was sure he was sick again after a bowl of leek and potato soup. He had had to go to the doctor, who put this episode down to excessive stress. Geoffrey had commented to the physician that he had been experiencing a certain salty taste in his mouth of late. The doctor said it was a side effect of his current medication. He changed the brand of tablet, and then he upped the dose. But all of these thoughts came in such a haze and blur that Geoffrey found that he couldn't tell truth from imagination. The sequence of his thoughts had no logic to them, and frustration was all that he felt now that he was locked alone in his mind. Most infuriating of all, however, was the thought that all of the pills he'd been prescribed had been aimed at preventing a heart attack. According to the medical literature, the chances of having a stroke whilst taking them was really rather small. Wasn't he right in thinking he was on the highest dose of blood thinners available? In any case, Geoffrey tried hard not to allow himself to think about all these confusing and upsetting things. In his experience, the fateful division of injustice in life was nothing more than unfair. To reconsider the unkindness of his hand in recent years was just too grim and painful. Because, in the end, he always thought what was done was done. Mrs. Tiggywinkle was getting rough and scratchy. She was also getting very, very old. Her cage was always a mess and it was a nuisance to clean. The problem with guinea pigs was, Dawn realised, that for all the affection you gave them, they didn't give much back in return. Still, her pet was nearly seven, an old lady in guinea pig terms. Dawn decided she would care for the old bird right until her squeaky dying day. Dawn didn't see the photograph at first. It was black and white and right near the very last page. It was only when she was folding up the remainder of the paper and putting it back in the pet care drawer that the image caught her eye. It was a photograph of her mother, wearing an odd and old-fashioned outfit with a strange and pained expression on her face. Dawn unfolded the paper. She looked at the caption beneath the photograph. Last known image of Ms. Kira Dunleavy, identified as the British woman who fell overboard on the P&O cruise from Belfast to Norway last week. The photograph was taken as part of the security protocol on board. Dawn didn't know what all those long words meant, but she saw Belfast and she saw Norway and she knew she'd seen her mother. Dawn had to sit down. None of this made sense. Had Kira really gone? Was that really her mother she saw in print on the last page? Dawn was breathless. She found she couldn't speak or think or cry. Just then, Mrs Wade wandered into the utility room, humming to herself her usual nerve-pinching tune. She set her laundry basket down on the tumble dryer, and she smiled at Dawn. Dawn looked up at Mrs Wade, uncertain. Mrs Wade told her she looked as though she'd just seen a ghost. Maybe I have, Dawn replied. It was a figure of speech, Dawn, said Mrs Wade, shaking the first of the dirty t-shirts right side out and stuffing it into the washing machine. Ghosts don't exist. Dawn was so often told she had a vivid imagination that sometimes it made her a little irate. She didn't believe in special coincidences, in curses or in magic. She might not have been clever, but she didn't think like the child that everybody thought she still was. 
but she had just seen the picture of her mother and she knew it. She was absolutely sure. And the newspaper had claimed that the dead lady was her aunt. There was an answer to all of this. There had to be. A proper answer. A real answer. And the answer had something to do with her mother. And the answer had something to do with that boat. And the answer would be sure to tell her where her precious Auntie Kira was. Dawn hoped and hoped and hoped that it wasn't at the bottom of the sea. Nigel knew he could be a bit of a shit. One of his greatest regrets, of course, was living his life untruthfully, both for his own sake and for Kira's. But the pair of them had been such great mates together at Queen's that he'd allowed their companionship to overshadow his true desires. In some ways, he did find Kira attractive. The classic 60s leggy blonde, Quite conveniently, she had always been unaware of her own sex appeal and the fact that she could have had any man in any given room. It was a thrill for Nigel to see all the other men around her gasp and gawk in her presence. That sensation went some way to compensate for the lack of true attraction that he had felt for the beautiful girl. Nigel's guilt, though, was tempered by the fact that his leanings, in those days and in that place, were so unheard of, so taboo. To confess to them would have been disastrous, both for his social life and his career. Things were difficult enough now with the sudden arrival of that deathly virus and the judgment and fervour with which the ideologues of various persuasions commented upon and raged about the disease. He still wasn't sure if Kira held their years together against him. They were still close friends, but Kira was never one to stand up for herself or to complain of ill-treatment. He could only half-guess that Kira had been desperate to have children. The opportunity came and went, and his presence in her life was certainly a major impediment to any dream of having her own family. She did have her niece, Dawn, however, which Nigel thought must have been at least some compensation. Nigel and Kira came over to London from Belfast in the early 60s. It was an amazing time. He, a blonde Terence Stamp, and she a ravishing Jean Shrimpton. It was a whirlwind of parties and fashion and music. In those days, with little effort, one's career could take off. Timing in life, Nigel realised, was everything. It was clear that they were lucky enough to have arrived in London the right year. Well-educated and with an intriguingly different accent, they were in demand at all the fashionable events. In any case, with Kira on his arm, to Nigel, all doors were open. Nigel was an actor, quite a successful one at that. Though his homosexuality was not known to the general public, it was an open secret within the industry. And since coming out to his close friends and colleagues, his career had quietly stalled. Nigel wasn't resentful, however. That, as they say, was life. Anyway, Nigel had accrued ample resources during his twenties and thirties. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. He found there was some truth to his mother's oldie-worldie sayings. That, and an astute eye for property, enabled him to break away from Kira. Leaving the Wimbledon house to his ex-wife went some way to salve his conscience. They would see each other very regularly, although now each of them led their own very separate lives. Kira was kind enough to tolerate his various boyfriends, and they, of course, all took to her. 
Nigel did find it strange, therefore, that Kira hadn't joined his party at the Wimbledon final. He'd invited her, paid for her ticket as a 50th birthday treat. He didn't make a scene about it, however, as he was certainly guilty of much worse over the years. He hadn't suspected, though, that the reason for her absence could be something so absolutely awful. The call came on Tuesday evening. It was the police. They told Nigel that Kira had been on a cruise ship and that she'd disappeared. It was suspected that she'd fallen overboard. Such happenings weren't as unusual as one might think, they told him. Passengers fell overboard on cruise ships as many as 25 times a year. They had no reason, they said, to suspect that there had been any foul play. Was your wife a heavy drinker? asked the softly spoken policeman down the line, explaining that these unfortunate accidents often occurred when passengers had imbibed a few too many alcoholic beverages. Ex-wife, said Nigel, steadying himself as he spoke. And no, I can't say that I ever knew her to get anything more than a little tipsy. Although in recent years... In recent years? In recent years, she'd had a very tough time of it. Cancer, our divorce, another divorce. I've no reason to suspect she took to drowning her sorrows in drink, but I don't doubt that she'd become very unhappy in the end. We'll never know what happened to your ex-wife, but suicide, of course, is something that's always considered. People can be very determined once they've resolved to take their own life. And with the temperature of the water and the strength of those currents, particularly if she did it at night, there's no way she could have possibly survived. As Nigel put down the receiver, his hand shaking with guilt, the man began to wonder just what role he might have played in driving his beautiful and loving ex-wife into this final act of suicide.